0: Now, in the text that we studied last Sunday, we saw that there were preparations being made for the Passover and also preparations for Christ to go to the cross. And in all the preparations, we saw that Jesus was in absolute control of all of that. And he knew what was going to happen, and he was actually controlling everything that was going to happen. Nothing came to us as a surprise to him. He was not caught off guard. Uh, he was not caught up into something that was too big for him to handle as well. He had everything planned, and everything was happening according to that plan. And so now in the verses we'll ex, uh, examine this morning, we see Mark's brief account of the actual meal that Jesus and the disciples uh shared together on that night. This meal is hugely significant because it's a meal that we continue to reflect on every time that we partake in the Lord's Supper. And there are actually only two ordinances that we hold to as a church. Um, An ordinance is an authoritative order or command. Uh, We believe that those uh, ordinances are the two it's baptism and the Lord's Supper, or what we might call communion. Now, the wisdom of God is seen in the simplicity of these two ordinances, in that a rich man can do no more, and a poor man can do no less. But why should the Lord's Supper be called an ordinance as opposed to a sacrament? Well, if you see a sacrament is an oath or con. Uh, consecration, as a way to acquire uh, grace. The term implies that the sacrament itself is essential for salvation. For example, the Roman Catholic Church has seven sacraments, all being essential to secure salvation. There's churches like the Church of Christ, and you may end up... uh, knowing that uh, the Robertsons from Duck Dynasty are are part of the Church of Christ. Now, they teach that baptism is necessary in order to be saved. Repent, believe, and be baptized. And they hold to all three of those as being necessary for um, salvation. And they also say that you must take the Lord's Supper every Sunday in order to maintain salvation. There are some exceptions that are permitted. And so what about communion? We, we talk about the Lord's Supper communion uh, as one of the same, and they are. The Latin uh, term for that is Eucharist. The Greek term is koinonia, and it means mutual participation and can refer to the Lord's Supper or the, uh, the collective church itself. We see that in, we, we see the communion of the saints. Now you're not talking about the Lord's Supper, you're talking about the church coming together in communion, meaning having fellowship. And what actually happens at the Lord's Supper um, when it's correctly observed? Well, here's what it is when it's not correctly observed. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the elements, being the bread and the wine, literally are transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And that's called transubstantiation. And according to that teaching, the partakers receive grace through the elements Whereby the elements themselves come to be an expiation. An expiation means the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. In other words, the, the, uh, elements become an atonement, become a, an, uh, an amends or reparation for guilt. And they support this idea. It from uh, John 6, 53 and 54, where the Lord says, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so they are, are taking this as a, a literal statement. However, the context of the passage is not the Lord's Supper. Because the ordinance of the Lord's Supper had not yet been instituted at that time now orthodox Orthodox Christians and we would consider ourselves as orthodox um or that we we have a straight line right from the the uh the apostles and the time of Christ, we believe that the Lord's Supper and And baptism are symbolic of what has been done for us by Jesus and not what is done by us as we observe them. Now, let me say that the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church is actually worse than the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's Phariseeism and Sadduceeism mixed with idolatry and Babylonian heathenism. This is superstitious and idolatrous. Roman Catholics actually worship the bread. transubstantiation contradicts the Bible. so if you are ever at a a Catholic uh, wedding or or funeral or whatever, I would suggest you don't you do not partake in that communion. it is not the same communion as we observe. So don't just because it's called the same. It's best not to partake of that Um, because that actually contradicts the Bible. Acts 15 29 says that we are to abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood. Now, many Christians were burnt at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church during the Inquisition because they refused to accept the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. Now, there are various Protestant groups that came out of Rome or the Roman Church and adopted similar views regarding the Lord's Supper. As a matter of fact, Luther or the Lutherans teach what they call Consubstantiation, which holds that while the bread and wine remain bread and wine, these elements are actually invested with the character of the body and blood of Christ. That is, under and around the symbols, there is a real physical presence of Christ. John Calvin also taught that the Lord's spiritual presence was in the elements. Calvin did not get that from the Bible, but he got that from Rome. And we have to remember, both Luther and Calvin were originally Roman Catholic priests. Of all the reformers, apparently Huldrych Zwingli was the only major figure who believed that the bread and the wine were merely symbols representing the body and blood of Christ. And so how are the ordinances symbolic? The Lord's Supper emphasizes the death and resurrection of Jesus and implies his burial and resurrection, where baptism emphasizes the burial and resurrection of Jesus and implies his death and risen life. And now while there are some views that may help foster a serious attitude toward communion, it really fails to grasp the figurative, the figurative nature of Jesus' language. Jesus could not have been holding his actual body and blood in his hands. Jesus often used figurative language. Just as when, if I were to take out a picture and say, This is my father, or this is my wife, or this is my son. You don't think that that picture is actually them. You realize that that is a portrait or a representation of them. We see the same thing as we have the Lord's table. We end up saying these are a representation of the the real thing. And so if you recall, when we left uh, the disciples last week, they were all gathered in the upper room, and they were looking to prepare the ce- uh, to celebrate the Passover. And for almost 1,500 years, the Jews celebrated the powerful work of God in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And this was the celebration of the Passover. If you would please turn to Exodus chapter 12 in verses 24 through 27. We'll take uh, just a peek at that. Exodus chapter 12, and starting with verse 24. Here it says, And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your, your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? And you shall say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. So essentially, this was an essential celebration to identify Israel. That it was one of the three main feasts that they had, that every Jewish male an able-bodied male, would have to attend. They were required to attend. So it was uh, an essential celebration for them. And the Passover celebrated the fact that God, by a strong arm, delivered the people of Israel from the bondage of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the land of promise. And as you well know, this text, and really, The other gospel accounts of the Institute of the Lord's Supper have traditionally been called the Last Supper. And so with that as our our, um, introduction, if you would please turn to our text for this morning. It's found in Mark chapter 14. And we'll start by looking at verses 22 through 26. Mark 14. Verses 22 through 26. Starting with verse 22, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives." Here we see Jesus is sharing this meal with the disciples. And this isn't any ordinary meal. This was the Passover meal. and, And being obedient to the Old Testament Scriptures, Jesus is sharing this with the disciples as well as all other Israelites that were doing that same thing at that day of the year. So it's important to point out the fact that the main part of the meal actually occurs after Judas Iscariot had been dismissed from the company of Jesus and the disciples. Actually, in John 13.30, it says that after Jesus, or Judas received the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. And so at this point, Mark picks up the main point of the Passover meal where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Luke actually tells us in Luke chapter 22 that Jesus had earnestly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples in light of the fact that he knew he was ready to suffer and go to the cross. This was his whole passion. This is the thing that he came to earth to do. Jesus did not come to earth just to be a good uh, prophet, a good teacher. He came to this earth to save his people. And he was, he was desirous of that. And as a matter of fact, uh, we could say that uh, the language of Hebrews twelve two says, For the joy that was set before him. Jesus had the joy because he was going to redeem his people. And in accordance with the timetable of the sovereignty of his Father, Jesus was ready to endure the agony of the cross. He was ready to endure the separation of his fellowship with the Father. Endure the separation from the disciples in order to secure salvation and full atonement. For his people, now all the the shadows of the old covenant, all the animals that had been slaughtered, the lambs that had been slaughtered, uh, throughout all of those Passovers up until now, are culminating in what Jesus is getting ready to do by offering Himself as a sacrificial offering, and He was going to do that at a place of sinners, Mount Calvary. And so Jesus, knowing that this is the case, during the Passover meal, he institutes the Lord's Supper in light of the impending cross. Now there's four things that uh, he's doing here. First of all, all the gospel accounts of the Lord instituting the Lord's Supper are more than just a record of the actual event these records are meant to help us understand how we are to participate in this event of the Lord's Supper. In other words, we are to ask ourselves the question as we study this this morning, how are we to view the purpose of what we do? Why did Jesus institute it? Secondly, why is it important that we actually participate not just going through it mindlessly, not just having a mere ritual. Thirdly, it's, it's important as a question to know what do the elements or the emblems of the bread and the cup symbolize? What do they convey to us as we partake in them? And then fourthly, where does the, the supper fit in really, with our understanding of the gospel. Is the gospel separate from the Lord's Supper? Is there a connection to what we are, uh, what we're doing here, and the gospel? Well, if you notice, back in our text, verse 22, it says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. As I said, this is while they were eating, but after Judas left, before the main part of the meal, Judas had already left. Jesus took the unleavened flat cake, gave thanks, broke it, and then distributed it to the apostles, to his, his twelve. At that point, it was the eleven. And then gave them The imperative, take, eat, this is my body. Jesus passed out the bread and and, uh, said that this represents my body, my physical body, this is a representation of it. Now Jesus was physically there as he spoke to these men. And so he didn't mean you're going to actually eat my bread, or, or eat my body and drink my blood. Otherwise, that could have been pretty easy. Carve off a chunk, you know, a little bloodletting, and then you, there you go. If he was holding it and say, take, eat, this is my my body, this is my blood, why didn't he actually do that? If he would have, that practice was, was absolutely Abhorrent to the Jews. Because God himself says in Leviticus 7.26, Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beast. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. And then in Leviticus 17.11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And so Jesus' words that occur while the Passover meal is in progress, probably between the drinking the second and third cups of wine, says, you know, here's my body, here's my my blood. Jesus was following a normal Passover rite, the Passover blessing. And so he broke the bread. He distributed the, the cup. And in doing so, he probably would have said something. Now, this is obviously didn't speak English, but, you know, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And according to the Torah, the bread of presentation um, that was placed on a, a golden table in the tabernacle Sabbath, by um, tabernacle sabbath by sabbath was called the bread of remembrance and you can see that in Leviticus 24 7 now jesus then takes the third cup and gave it to his disciples now it would have been between the offering uh, of the offering of bread and the cup was the time that they ate in the ate that meal. And so we see that. We see in verse 22 it says, and as they were eating. So they were in the process of eating that Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it. We need to remember that Jesus is the head or the host of this meal. And so he took this unleavened bread as was custom during the Passover and he would have pronounced as it says in in verse 22, that blessing. The word blessing there is the word yugaleo, and it means to consecrate it or to pronounce blessing on it. In other words, it's making something of common use into something for religious or divine purpose. So in some ways, you you can look at and this might not be the best illustration, but, you know, a pastor, an elder, or deacon. The word ordained is a similar word, and it's to appoint ordinary men to the sacred office or position within the church. Both words have to do with setting a common person or thing to a sacred purpose. And so this bread is not made into something other than bread. It is, at that moment, though, set aside for an uncommon purpose. And normally, the bread would have been eaten in silence. But at this time, Jesus, uh, after he broke it and gave it to them, he makes a statement. And we see that at the end of verse 22. Take, eat. This is my body. This is my body. That's a stunning statement. It's identifying himself as the Passover bread. The disciples would have never heard this before. The breaking of bread is for us a representation of the broken body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Broken on the cross where he was bruised and wounded and crushed under the weight of our sin. Taking the bread from the Savior's hand and eating it symbolized taking and receiving Christ in his death by the hand of faith and feeding on him spiritually and our union with him. Now after the miracle of feeding 5,000, Jesus gave an interpretive sermon that Mark doesn't record. But thankfully, John does. He tells that tells us that the people in the crowd immediately made a connection between the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and manna that Moses gave in the wilderness. So if you'd please turn there to John chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 28 through 40. John chapter 6. starting with verse 28. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God... Of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that You have seen me, and yet do not believe. All the Father has given me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I shall should lose nothing, but should raise up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. So back to our text. Jesus now explains the new meaning of the cup in verse 24. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Now on the cross, Jesus would fulfill the old covenant and establish a new covenant. The animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant were carried out repeatedly as temporary atonement until the Savior would come. The New Covenant was accomplished once and for all by the the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. You can see that in Hebrews 9 and 10. The New Covenant would be launched for the Jews and the shed blood of Christ would take away sin and cleanse the heart and conscience of the believer prophet jeremiah prophesied such a day it was in jeremiah 31 so if you would please turn to jeremiah chapter 31 i know we're doing a lot of turning but this is important that you see this the connections here jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, th- verses 31 through 34. Verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day, in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will become their God, and they shall become my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. And so here in our text, this day was about to happen. The wine represents the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed on the cross when his hands and feet and side were pierced. Drinking the wine symbolizes receiving that blood of Christ for forgiveness of sin, the remission of sin, the cleansing of the conscience. And so the two emblems, the bread and the wine, are symbols of Jesus' broken body and shed blood. We note that in the Lord's appointment of This ordinance, he conveys the spiritual significance of his body being broken and his blood being shed. The Lord's suffering and death lies at the heart of our union and communion with him. The blessing obtained for God's elect, our first reconciliation with God in and through the offering of Of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Secondly, all the blessings of the everlasting covenant are secured by his blood, therefore called the new covenant in my blood. Just to get a better handle on this, I again am going to have you turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, we'll look at verses 11 through 28. Starting with verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most high holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of the heifers sprinkled the unclean sanctifies for the purity of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also there must also of necessity be the death of the of the testor. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the tester lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, He took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkling both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, to those who eagerly wait for him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Folks, you see, all our blessings are founded on Christ's death. Both Luke and Paul emphasize the personal nature of blessings accrued from the Lord's death with the words, this is my body broken for you. And if you notice in verse 24, the Lord specifically speaks of his blood being shed for many. This represents his blood, which is a covenant blood that is poured out to bring people into right relationship with God. Many people, not all people, will be saved. The uh, preposition for... For many is the Greek word peri, which means his shed blood has vicarious value, meaning it will have an effectual influence on those whom it was given for. It will wash away all the sin of many who believe. And the many for whom Christ's blood is shed are all the elect of God in every age, who were ordained to everlasting life in God's eternal counsels, given to Christ in covenant agreement and justified by him upon the merits of his death and resurrection. There are also many sons he will bring to glory, having procured their forgiveness honored God's judgment, and made satisfaction to the law for all their transgressions. You do not get into a covenant relationship with God by works or religion. It is by His shed blood alone. And this new covenant, that word new is the Greek word kainos, And it means brand new. Never been in existence. Never been a covenant before. So Jesus takes unleavened bread and the cup of wine and he uses it for a symbol of what would happen to him. His shed blood can wash away your sins. But if you reject it, you will die in your sins and you will forever experience everlasting fire. Now, I want to bring this back around. I already told you, Judas was dismissed by the time all of this took place. That means Judas did not partake in this. Just keep that in mind. Because we need to understand that those who partake in, uh, of the Lord in an unworthy manner are guilty of the body and blood of the lord they do not discern the lord's body rightly we give that as as a warning because these people do not realize and perhaps do not want to realize that jesus died so they might become humble holy people he died for our sins Every offense to God. All are wrong attitudes, all are wrong words, all are wrong actions. Jesus died for. A person who eats the supper unworth, unworthily, they align themselves more to Judas than to Christ. They align themselves with wicked men. And yes, it's true that our sins are crucified with Christ. But we are not his betrayers. Because we have received the grace that has been given with full purpose to change. He sanctifies those who he justifies. And so... I pray that we are those who prepare ourselves to receive the Lord's Supper by realizing and going over our minds that we are still sinners. We still commit sin. And that sin had to be taken care of. He had to pay for every single sin His body was scourged and beaten. It was torn and lacerated by the lashings that he got. His sacred head received the crown of long thorns. He was struck, mocked, and spit on, and then taken to Golgotha and nailed to the cross. All of this drew his precious blood from his body. Shed for you. That you would become one of his many saints. That's what's meant by the word many. Listen to what Matthew Henry says on this. First, he says, Christ came to confirm a covenant with many. And the intent of his death agreed. The blood of the Old Testament was shed for a few. It conferred a covenant which, Moses said, the Lord made with you. The atonement was made only for the children of Israel, but Christ is a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Secondly, whatever sin you may have committed in your heart and mind and in your actions since the last time you partook of the supper should now be confessed. It needs to be confessed before you partake, and that's why we have a a moment of prayer. And why do we constantly repeat and come back to the Lord's Supper. It's so that we can understand that Christ is caring for our wounds, our our wounds that we have now, the wounds of sin, and that he is pouring out a fresh oil of grace onto them. He's covering them and applying the balm of Gilead. This is why he had to die and this is why the the supper was instituted so we can know that there's always the reality of freshness of forgiven uh, for, of forgiveness that we would be able to repent and that we would have even more faith in our walk with him you should not abstain from the supper because you find that you've committed certain sins since last time. Instead, you, there should be a reason to come, to partake with a humble and joyful heart knowing that Christ has cleansed you and you should feel that, that cleansing anew and afresh. You can never out out-sin the grace of God. You are only unworthy if you really are an unbeliever trying to partake or a person whose attitude toward yourself and Christ is not right. But even that unworthy attitude can be addressed by a heartfelt confession of sin Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and open the door, I will come in and dine with him and he, he, he with me. So before we partake of the supper, we need to have dealings with God, confessing our sin, and he will come. And dine with you. Now, I have four kinds of people that should be considered for the Lord's Supper. First of all, those who don't come and should not come. Those who don't come and should not come. As I said, the unregenerate, unbelievers are not invited to the Lord's table. Those who are spiritually dead and have not come to Christ, repented and believed in him, should not come. The Lord's table is not where you find the grace of God unto salvation. You do not get to Christ through the ordinances of you get to Christ by grace through faith. Secondly, those who don't come, but should come. Those who don't come, but should come. Repentant, but ignorant for the purpose of the Lord's Supper. Those people, what I, what I mean is that they, they, I, I can't partake because I'm not good enough to come. if you're repentant and believing, you will never be good enough. As a matter of fact, if you thought you were good enough, you shouldn't partake. Third, is those who come and should not come. Again, unregenerate, who believe they're saved but there's no fruit of salvation. They are still in rebellion to Christ, but they're afraid of what people will think of them. They're afraid that if they don't partake, people will look down at them. Salvation is, is just being part of a bigger thing. It's not to repent and believe. This also applies to unsaved children. To have a child partake just so that you pacify them. That's not good. We should never do that. And then fourthly, those who come and should come, they're described in Romans 5, 6 through 11. Let's go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 6. Romans chapter 5, and I know we're turning a lot, but this is an important thing that we see all through Scripture. Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 6. For when we were still without strength... In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God, whenever you see that, you should fall on your knees. But God, because every time that that is said, or the majority of times, it is talking about the grace of God. He gives this warning and then he says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now received the reconciliation. You see... They were ungodly, lost sinners, enemies of God who find their righteousness only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now continuing with verse 25 of our text, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. We need to think of this in two senses We need to think of these words in two different ways. First of all, Christ cannot drink with us physically now because He sits at the right hand of the Father. And secondly, since He has all power and authority, and we can surely believe that He is with us during the partaking of this, He certainly partakes in our joy and all that He has done for us through His suffering and death. He can can taste what we're tasting. He partakes. But spiritually, he's with us as we partake in communion. You know, think of the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. You know what? Let's turn there. Why not? Why not? Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 31. Starting with verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Then they drew near the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would not have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, And the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight." as we recognize and discern the Lord's body, these emblems that are before us, these, the bread and the wine, we believe that He not only suffered and died for us, but that He's alive and that we are gathered in His name. The other sense in which Christ will drink the new wine with us is in the kingdom in the coming day, the day of eternity. And that will commence upon his return. On that glorious day we shall see him face to face and we will be changed to be like him. We will then receive a glorified body And this old world that we live in will come to an end and our Lord shall create new heavens and new earth where we will uh, dwell righteously. In that eternal day, sorrow and sighing will flee and many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when the kingdom of heaven comes to this earth and there i believe will be a banquet of wine not just fruit of the wine fruit of the vine it will be with a joy and spiritual delight that will make our hearts forever glad and then finally in verse 26 it says and when they had sung a hymn they went out to the mount of olives now they would have probably sung Psalm 116, 17, and 18 because this would have been a traditional closing praise. And Mark tells us that then they went to the Mount of Olives or out to the Mount of Olives, which means that they crossed the Kidron Valley and they would have entered the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would eventually be arrested. Sort of interesting. There was a garden in the beginning of the book too, wasn't there? Adam and Eve were kicked out of that garden. Here, Jesus will be dragged out of this one. And so, as we look at this, we see that there's a a past orientation of everything that the old bloody lambs of the old covenant were all shadows of, and it's now fulfilled in Christ, the bloody lamb of Calvary, our substitute who makes full atonement to which all the other lambs pointed forward to, by Jesus historically linking the Passover together with the Lord's Supper, which is clearly what He's doing here, is He's making it clear that what was essential in the first covenant should not be lost in the second. That it is necessary for blood to atone for sins. That all the lambs pointed not to themselves, but to the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ for His people. The Passover pointed forward to it. The Lord's Supper points back to it. The Lord Jesus died the perfect bloody substitute, bearing the guilt of His people. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake He was made to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We could put it this way. Jesus embraced the penalty of divine wrath to satisfy divine justice, therefore ratifying the new covenant, fulfilling all of God's age-old promises of forgiveness that came through the proclamation of the gospel. That be- that became... that. Began all the way back in the past in the garden. All the way back. Where it says that through the serpent, or though the serpent would strike the heel of the seed of the woman, he would bruise the serpent's head. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the blood of Christ symbolized by the wine, by the cup. Jesus is providing a covenant ceremony by which the new covenant is now ratified. And what happened when Jesus died on the cross? The veil was torn in two in the Holy of Holies. Forty years later, the temple was destroyed by the romans all of these were signs indicating the fact that jesus had come and the new covenant had begun the new covenant had now been inaugurated and the old covenant was done away with but the new covenant was built on the old covenant we are not Separate from the people of God in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we partake in the Lord's Supper in the same manner that the people of God partook of the Passover, understanding that we must have someone be sacrificed for our sins if we want salvation. So the Passover gives way to the Lord's Supper. And so there's just a couple practical considerations as we identify the fact that we participate in the Lord's covenant, the Lord's Supper. First question is, do we use unleavened bread and wine in the Lord's Supper? Well, there's no shortage of books and documents throughout church his- history that debate, uh, debate these very points. One of the reasons it's debated is because they understand that we have to have this past orientation. We have to have that link to the, the Passover meal, the Old Covenant, because it's connected. And here's the thing. There are Baptists who often insist that grape juice and unleavened bread uh, are used while a lot of Presbyterians insist that red wine and leavened bread be used. Um, Baptists don't always agree, and Presbyterians don't always agree on this. Interesting, though, Calvin argued for a very frequent observance of the Lord's Supper. He believed that it should be taken weekly, but he lived in the town of Geneva and they only allowed him to officiate it quarterly. So he went to Strasbourg and there he was able to do it as he wanted. But, again, Calvin is not the final authority. I quote Calvin this morning because we're a Reformed church and we fit within the Reformed traditions, but there are some of those that we don't hold to. In... What we do hold to is Calvin's view on the emphasis. In his Institutes of Christian Religion, Calvin puts a very good focus on this, of whether you use unleavened bread or leavened bread, whether you use wine or grape juice. He talks about all of this getting too involved in this can lead us to a very dangerous area and this is what he says and i quote whether the bread is leaven or unleaven the wine red or white or juice it makes no difference these things are indifferent and left the church's discretion i would have to agree with him he even goes on to say that insisting on unleavened bread or wine actually causes a new spectacle rather than to instruct our minds in sound religion. He says that there, these are lifeless and theatrical trifles, a pile of ceremonies. And what he's getting at is our focus should never be on the emblems themselves. These are indifferent things. We should use bread, and we should use fruit of the vine. And in my opinion, I believe that each church and their leadership has to just determine, are they going to have fermented or unfermented, leaven or unleavened? Whatever they do, it should not be such a focus that people get hung up on it. You know, that you unleaven is the sinlessness. But then leaven represents sin, right? So if we end up that he took upon our sin and it's broken, we can see both sides. We can see whether you are on one side or the other. But the whole thing is we need to end up realizing that it needs to be done in a Christ-honoring way. And that there should be a connection with the Passover. So, one other thing that I thought of is, is, what's the place of children in partaking in the Lord's Supper? Well, as we read from Exodus 12, and according to Jewish tradition, The youngest child would ask the question, Why do we eat these foods this night? And so there was a clear participation of children in the Old Covenant Passover. But yet today, you know, we understand that children should not partake in the communion table if they have not believed, repented and believed, and they are able to understand and live out the gospel cognitively. Meaning, if they you try to get them to believe in this and they go, yep, yep, they have no idea what they're, they're, it's all about. They don't really know because they haven't had that much opportunity to sin. So many Christians try to get them to partake and be baptized. Well, you know what? If you believe in in uh you, you say, well I don't I don't believe in in uh paedo baptism. Well do you believe in paedo communion communionism? Because the thing is we want to end up saying, we're not going to baptize babies. Instead, we're going to, at a young age, when these kids have no idea what they're, they're saying, what they believe, they haven't been tested in any way, we try to get them to say, I love Jesus. I believe that he's the Lord and Savior. And we end up going, there's the faith. I just want to, doesn't mean that kids, small kids, and I'm, I'm not saying really small, but younger kids cannot believe. But we should be careful how quickly we bring them. And if we do bring them, we should always have the warning of their life reflecting a life that is God-honoring. Otherwise, we end up cementing their heart. We end up pouring concrete around their heart. And anyone that says, you're not a believer, they'll go, nope, I made that decision. I, I'm," And they'll think they're believing. We need to always, and that's the gospel should always be to ourselves as well. We test ourselves daily to see if we be in the faith. We need to do that ourselves. Why is it? that so many churches want to get small children. We don't believe in infant baptism, but boy, oh boy, they sure do believe in a professional faith and then start having them partake in communion. And they say, yep, done, in. All I'm going to say is we need to be careful. We need to also realize that the Lord's table is meant to be something that the church participates in so that they see Christ through the elements. They don't see the elements themselves. They see Christ in that. And it needs to be ongoing, and it's meant to be a a ministry to us here and now. We feed upon christ our faith is strengthened our love toward christ grows deeper our love toward one another grows deeper our hope for his future return is strengthened the importance of the lord's supper for christ church and his people is to regularly bring to our minds and frequently the suffering and death of our Savior it is a feast to be treasured and enjoyed until he comes again and we must not neglect it let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you we thank you for the glorious riches of your grace We thank you for instituting the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the bread because it represents the body of the incarnation, the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cup because it reminds us and represents his death on our behalf. And just as the blood of all the lambs had to be applied to the doorpost that night in Egypt, his blood, spiritually speaking, is applied on us that we might stand complete in him. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have in celebrating this ordinance and also the ordinance of baptism, which we will uh, hear about next week. We thank you that like-minded believers can come together who who represent your body, your bride, here on earth, and we can truly commune with you. We pray this in Jesus' most glorious and precious name. Amen.